the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to the Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 66, and our guest is Kenny Roby. Kenny is an accomplished musician originally from North Carolina, who now makes his home in upstate New York. Kenny made a name for himself as the frontman for the pioneering alt-country band Six String Drag in the late 90s, and then went on to work with the great Neil Casal for many years, as well as put out a bunch of amazing solo records. We talk about his excellent new record, The Reservoir, which is incredible, y'all. It came out on August 7th, 2020. We talk about his work with Neil, soul and blues, and uh, much to my alt-country-loving excitement, the 90s scene in which Kenny was entrenched during this conversation. Listen to The Reservoir. Pick up a copy at KennyRoby.net. Everyone, it is my great honor to present my conversation with Kenny Oh, now I see you. Sorry about that. Uh, I was trying to avoid, I got a new laptop. I was trying to avoid um, downloading the Zoom app on my laptop, but it, there was no way around it for this time. Oh, yeah, they're going to get you, man. There's no way. Uh, you can use your browser, but uh, but I hadn't set it up to where it would have let me access my mic, so here we go. All right. Well, man, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, about so much. Um, this record's beautiful, man. It's um, the reservoir. It's it's gorgeous. Um, you know, your your good friend, uh, the great Neil Casal said, "I really believe we have a classic on our hands," which is a bold statement, especially and super high praise from someone of his stature and experience and uh i tend to agree thank you um so much to it man and um you know there's just there's so much i want to get into um and i think right now you know everything everything feels so heavy for everybody um you really went through quite a bit um especially in the last in in 2019 um and and i just want to kind of like if we can start with talking about what you do for self-care what you do for resilience 
um, how, how do you, how do you get back up and dust yourself off and, and go out and make these things? Um, I don't know. I like, sometimes I feel like there's really no other choice, you know, um, um, either you're going to live or you're not. Um, I mean, we straddle those worlds, I guess. And that's when life is the toughest when you straddle, you know, trying to live your life and, and not really living, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any, like, a, there's a magic key to, to that door, um, to getting through. Um, there's all kinds of ways to open it. And I use all kinds of keys and tools daily, um, whether it's meditation or just practice and looking at reality and not paying attention to the future stories in my head or, you know, the shame and, uh whatever of the past uh, um as they say um just try to see humanity and myself and other people and and sometimes just look at the bigger picture look at history a little bit um it's that um i guess that um paradox of you know these are unprecedented times and um, it's all happened before, you know, mm. just like I'm, I'm a special individual and I don't mean special with a capital S like I'm great, but I just mean like I'm a unique individual yet. Um, yet I'm not, I'm just another human, you know, and I don't mean me as in Kenny, but me as in the individual, the I, you know, I think that we're, um, we're all, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, uh, you know, we're, we're all clowns. Um, we just, you know, dress ourselves in different makeup sometimes. And sometimes that's other people that put us in that makeup, you know, and sometimes uh, through our practices and our ignorance and lack of skill, um, selfishness or whatever, we've, we dressed ourselves in that makeup, we put that makeup on. But, um, you know, we all, you know, we all have our, um, our humanness and our suffering. And, um, you know, that helps me to look at that, you know, to identify with other people and look at ways that we're similar and, um, and not how we're different. I think that's, uh, I guess maybe that's, I don't know, my thoughts that, um, you know, one of the problems in the world is like we all look at our differences rather than our similarities. We look for identification as a weapon rather than a tool. I guess. Um, so those are things that I think about sometimes and I talk to other people about, I make sure I keep in contact with other people. If I'm going down in the hole to do some work, so to speak, I make sure that they, um, I have a flashlight and I have friends up top that are holding onto the ropes because, um, you know, maybe in Neil's case, I really don't know. You can never know the totally the mind of someone else and where they're at and totally their heart. Um, in their experience, but, uh, you know, I know friends that have gone down in the hole and some intentionally to go searching for things and they didn't come back. You know, I have a friend who just died in Thailand, um, you know, with, in the middle of the pandemic and, uh, we still don't know what happened to him, you know? Um, but I know we went there searching and then the pandemic happened and he was the type that went down in the hole and, I, and you know, like I said, not that I, um, could be so uh, egotistical or bold uh, 
is to say I know everything about what he was going through or why he was doing what he was doing, but um, but it seemed like he tried to go in himself, you know. And I think when we go to those places, they're okay to search for and to try to discover and learn something from. But if we're not careful, they can be pretty dangerous. And I think that, um, you know, that uniqueness or that terminal isolation instead of, um, I mean, one thing is solitude and one thing is isolation. And I think isolation can be extremely dangerous. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of people, you know, suffer and have suicidal um, tendencies, um, not that I'm a mental health practitioner, but from my own experience with me and friends I've known, I think it's the isolation that's the problem and feeling like you're the only one, you know, rather than sort of intentional solitude for learning, you know, that's different, you know, and for to find something deeper. It's a tough balance. A too. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Um, that's exactly, yeah, no, that's, that's what we do on the show. Um, the, the, Cause you said you were talking a lot in there about the idea of kind of zooming out. And this has been a conversation with my partner a lot lately. We've, we've been doing a lot of zooming out and kind of keeping, um, you know, keeping, keeping the perspective, like you said, all of this stuff has happened before, maybe not necessarily at the mm -hmm. same time, but all of this stuff has happened yeah. before. Um, and we should have learned lessons from it. And sometimes it feels like, you know, we humans have not. Um, but also songwriting is such a, um, it can be such an ego driven pursuit. So how do you balance those two things? You see what I'm saying? Um, yeah, it is interesting because by nature, it's sort of selfish. Um, you know, you're getting down into your thoughts and you're sharing your perspective. And then when you do share it, you think you have something to share. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to straddle that line to do that, but also have, you know, not let the ego get away in the way and share something honestly. Um, that's tough. So, you know, there are no, no pure motives, I guess. Um, uh, and I think you do do it selfishly um, at first. I mean, I don't know if you create for selfish reasons. Maybe you enjoy it. Um, maybe it's for discovery. Maybe it's just for habit. You know, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I can't really stop um, these ideas coming. I can stop them once they come, but the initial, you know, seeds get in there and they start to, you know, ruminate or, um, uh, develop and become something and if I take care of them um, hopefully they can be something that's uh, um, decent enough and I feel confident enough to sort of go show the plant or the flower or the fruit of that to someone but that's not you know that's not initially um, why I garden so to speak mm. you know mm -hmm. um, so I can show somebody you know that's backwards um, that's going to be pretty transparent and it's probably going to fail because then I'm in the result and not the process and the, what comes out of being creative, you know, which is the sort of language I speak to myself. And then if I learn the language well enough, I can translate it to someone else. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does to some extent. I wonder if I could push you a little bit on it, especially as I think about the new record. Um, there's 16 songs on it. And, uh, you know, I said last mm -hmm. night, um, all over social media as I was <laughs> preparing for this and re-listening to the record several times and raving about it. Um, 
there's 16 songs and, and all of them, uh, I think my words yesterday were breathtaking. I mean, it really is that kind of a record where every song just seems like there's no wasted space. There's no wasted time. And there is a lot to say. So how do you know, how do you get to that place where, you know, uh, I've, I've gone through the process. Now I need to share mm-hmm. this. And then once you decide to share it, how do you know what to, 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 sh- what to cut down? Cause you know, I'm, I'm sure there were more than 16 songs. Uh, I would guess more than 16 songs that could potentially have made this record um, based mm-hmm. on what I've seen from your work. And so how, how do you know, first of all, when it's time to share, right? And then how do you also know which things to share and which things not to? Um, I, I think part of it is just experience of learning to sort of trim these things down and edit them and not say everything and have some somewhat of a filter. Do not get so excited at every thought. Mm. Um, that you have to share it like you do, I guess, when you're a, a less experienced or younger songwriter or person, you know, mm. um, you sort of get to be a newbie, like, Woo, I got this thing <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. I want to tell the world, you know, and right. um, I became a vegan yesterday, man, everybody should be one, you know, um, and, yep. you know, uh, and that excitement is great fuel. But after you do it for a little while, you know, you realize that, hey, calm down, son, you know, you're going to have some more ideas and this may not be the best idea. So sort of, you know, sit with it and um, let it ferment, so to speak, and, and ripen. Um, And, um, you know, with this, like Neil and I discussed on this record uh, about, you know, with, okay, here's an example. Um, To answer your question specifically, I figured out over a long time of doing this, maybe I should ask other people's opinions. <laughs> what a radical concept, you know, um, that, that, so not be afraid to give someone I trust a very fresh idea um, uh-huh. before it's done or, Hey, this is a good, strong verse in the chorus. Um, what do you think about this being on the record? And that's what I did with Neil because I trusted his, mm. um, uh, uh, his taste, um, mainly, and his honesty that he would tell me. I mean, he had no problem with that. He's like, eh, this one's not as strong as so and so. Or he would be really honest, like, man, this may be a better song than that, but I'm really emotionally attached to this one or whatever. You know, he would be, he has to be honest too in that exchange. And, um, so, you know, I would share full songs with Neil. And then I would share partial songs with Neil and I would just give him, you know, if they were close enough to at least get an opinion, you know, uh, close enough to be the, a good strong start of the thought and, and just trust his wisdom and, and not too many other people around me. Like I said, I don't, don't want to overshare stuff. I, you know, um, but you know, Neil and I had gotten to where I'd sent him like 25, full songs or parts of songs, little demos that I'd done on my phone or uh, little voice memo demos. And, uh, you know, he'd gotten to where he's like, man, I I don't know, man, we got to whittle it down to 10 or 12. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, and we would go back and forth and there was, you know, five or six that, you know, we always, we both thought had to be on there. Mm. Um, And, 
And then, you know, I was down to 12 or 14 that I thought we should try with a little bit of priority on some. And then when Neil died um, and Dave Schools uh, took over the helm as producer, you know, I, David, Neil had sent Dave, I didn't know it, but Neil had sent Dave some of the demos, a handful of them. Um, and so Dave already knew some of the stuff. And, and I started sending, you know, we had more conversation on the phone and via text. And we were like sharing all this music and influences and, you know, um, things we dug and, you know, um, not necessarily specific to how we thought the record should sound, but um, more um, just fun, just exchanging music. You know, one day it'd be like old reggae, you know, <laughs> that, that didn't have a lot to do with this record. But uh, uh, anyway. Um, th- this is you, Neil, and Dave all together. Well, no, this is when, when Neil, well, when Neil passed away Neil and Dave passed. I'm sorry. took over as okay. the producer, Dave and I started exchanging texts and, um, okay and conversation on the phone. And um, so anyway, you know, I started sending Dave some more stuff. He's like, oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, that's great one, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, then there was an instance of Silver Moon, which I wrote about the night of Neil's memorial tribute show um, in late September last year. Um, which I finished on the same morning as I'm going to love again, actually. Oh, wow. And, and then there were two songs that were just because, and um, the songs just because and watching over me that were songs that I wrote like in 2004 ish uh, during and at the end and after the mercy filter record. And um, they seemed to fit this record and, and I wanted to try those too. And so you know, Dave and I basically just picked 18 songs and we had the right band who could pull it off. And we said, well, let's just do the Dylan old school or 50s, 60s, like live thing and just yeah. do as much as we can live and just not purposely run through the stuff, but let's just not be precious and get in there and see how things go. And we actually recorded 18 songs for the record in like basically five or six days of people all that are tracking and then i you know some mornings like i do don't you know what's on my mind we did it towards the end and i just like literally john shannon was in the loft sleeping at the studio <laughs> i could like hear him up there like i think he was actually lightly beautifully snoring or something <laughs> it was like nine or ten in the morning and i'm down there on the floor in the studio uh you know in the tracking room uh, and i cut don't you know what's on my mind oh wow um, so which is just me me playing acoustic you know yeah and um anyway that's a long-winded answer but the the, the short answer is I've done it long enough, I think, that I've sort of gotten to trust my editing skills and what what a, what is good and what's worthy of sharing, at least giving a shot. And then I ask other people, people I trust. You know, yeah. I trusted Neil, I trusted Dave, I trusted the musicians for their feedback. And that's something that um, trying to have to be the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker and, um, and the 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 captain of the ship and do all those things and wear all those hats really gets to be uh too much and i'm slowly starting to think i don't want to produce my own records too much anymore at least have a co-producer and someone i trust where i could just not wear that hat and somebody who gives me the right feedback and is honest and says hey do that again or hey let's try this 
or that also like in Dave's case, they trust my ideas as well. Mm. And even when he's like, eh, I'm not sure. I was like, just trust me. Give me, give me one shot at this, you yeah. know, um, which sort of happened on the vocal for all trains lead to cocaine. You know, I was like, man, how about this? How about a double vocal? Wait a second. How about we all double everything and play along to the track? You know, so I played acoustic and, uh, and sang along to the track. Wow. With the track, like John Lee Hooker style, like he did on some of his earlier 50s stuff on a few songs. And it just turned out pretty cool. So it's not a perfect vocal. We're not doing it to thicken it up. It just makes it kind of weird, you know, and what, ghosty. Do you remember where that idea came from? Like what, what, what inspired that? Hooker. You had you been listening <laughs> to Jolene Hooker at the time, or, or the like, song, the song, or, or doing that arrangement? Style, no, doing that arrangement doing style. style. Yeah. You know, I was listening to it, and it had a little bit of country blues meets Jolene Hooker vibe to it, and and also I love when Doug's on double stuff. You know, not to mm -hmm. make things like super thick, or it's just kind of a weird effect sometimes, and not make it perfect. Um, which Doug, Doug would double things his vocal sometimes and he would sing different word like a different word and just keep it and not even care um mm -hmm. so it just did a strange thing um uh it wasn't to because he was insecure or to make his vocal better it was just kind of a cool trick um and there's a song um and i can't remember it off uh i think it's the first channel hook a record and um and he does that and uh and i vaguely remembered it because i really listened to that record a lot um i'll come up with a minute with the title is when, when i was a teenager and and it just kind of it's got this ghosty effect to it um and and i thought man i'll try something like that you know um well it lends itself to that it particular like, song whoa that is yeah we were like wow that is like yeah. that's it you know and dave was like i think he even was out of the room or maybe it was like i did it in the morning or did it sometime when he was either maybe he was outside and maybe he wasn't in the studio yet and we were like chris and chris the engineer and i were like hey check this out he's like oh yeah that's it so that's an example of dave trusting the artist as well and letting me try my ideas and to help you know his whole thing was to help facilitate my vision you know and uh sort of save me from myself at times too um to save me from overthinking stuff he would let me think stuff through but he would save me from like getting in my own way if a vocal mm. was great and i start to get insecure and like oh i really want to fix it like the vocal on old love that was done live with the band. And I was like, I don't know about that vocal, man, but I played guitar live and I have to overdub, you know, the a new guitar and the vocal. And he goes, man, you're not touching that. And, and I was like, are you sure? And everybody in the studio was like, dude, like, I was like, I don't know, you know, whatever, getting yeah. insecure. And I could do it better. And he goes, man, he goes, he kind of rubbed his arm like he got in the chills. And he goes, man, I believe that guy which is something Neil used to say, you know, Dave said in the studio also, like when he did, like Neil would do a great part or do a part that he really believed in on bowls or guitar, he would come in and say, and Dave's like, what do you think? And Neil would go, man, I believe that guy, you know, sort of third person talking about himself. And Dave said the same thing wow. sometimes, you know, it's like, yeah, that's believable. Like, and that's what you, because that is ultimately what you're looking for is yeah. authenticity. 
You know, you're not looking for a perfect performance. I mean, look at Chet Baker. People sort of tear apart his jazz singing sometimes. And it's like, are you crazy? Yeah. You know, like I, I see him, I hear him, I feel him. I, I identify with that human, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that soul and that creature. And why would you ever trade that for technical, you know? Right. <laughs> it's, well, you know, I don't, why would I do that to my music? I don't like music like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's interesting because, you know, you guys, yeah. the, the people in that room uh, making this record are people who, who have the chops to make it quote unquote perfect if you wanted to. Do you have to rein yourself in at all on that? I mean, you have, you have somebody like Dave Schools and, um, and your that entire band is just a just an amazing amazing collection of individuals. Um, do, do you have to rein that in at all, or is that just pretty organic when you guys sit down to play? Is it like, all right, we're gonna we're just gonna go, and we're not gonna try to get to to put too fine a point on it? Yeah, there's there's something that that people say sometimes is just uh, you know wear wear it like a loose garment, mm-hmm. you know, and so still have clothes on you're still inside your clothes you know yeah but you're not wearing it so tight and uncomfortable and uh, it doesn't have to be form-fitting and um you know like those guys are so creative and uh and so good and have so much experience it's you know a combination of me knowing that and me being at a point in my life and career and art to where I'm just, it's just too hard not to trust people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't trust people, you probably shouldn't be working with them. Uh, As uh-huh. I think both Keith Richards and probably Paul McCartney, I think said it, you know, it should be easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be like riding a bike and playing with the, those guys or for the most part, like riding a bike and, you know, you can tweak it a little bit you could change gears but, you know, for the most part, a bike's a bike, you know, as long as it's working. And, and, and with those guys, it's very easy. And, and they make it easy. And at the same time, I was in a space to where I, I trusted people and wanted to let go um, and not squeeze things too much. And so uh, we finessed it, you know, but we stayed on the road. We curve over here, go over, hey, guys, let's pass this car here, you know, <laughs> to yeah. keep using the, the bike metaphor. But, um, you know, just sort of wear it loosely and, and and find like lightly tune it instead of like overthink it and drill it down to perfection. You know, of course, if I had an idea, I would say it. Or if somebody had an idea, sometimes they wouldn't say it. They would just play it, you know. Mm. Um, and some of that stuff I might not have loved. And I was like, yeah, but I trust this. And I trust you guys that that's right. And I liked it later or loved it later or which was rare most of the stuff i loved it you know or or at least was in the middle about it um from the get-go and then some things i didn't even pay attention to and i listened back later and i went oh my god that was brilliant did you hear that bass line did you hear that way tony did that snare you know or whatever or john played this little lick or you know jesse played this little riff or you know whatever um and it's kind of nice you know if you don't drill it down too much also and get too much too finite and too much in specifics then you also have a better experience listening it as, as to your own stuff later mm. 
if that makes sense. It makes a lot of you sense. Know, like you, you don't squeeze it, and so you carry it softly so you can so it lives longer. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you, you discover your own art, especially because you're creating it with other people, mm. you know? And so you don't hear everything at first. That would be shitty, wouldn't it? To yeah. hear it, to know it all right away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I. <laughs> yeah, just no dis- no sense of discovery and no openness to to yeah. something becoming something that you didn't expect. Uh, yeah. That yeah, and that's the way songs are too. You know, like John Prine, I I listened to an NPR interview a few years back, and he was talking about his. I, I think he was talking about something off bruised orange and he goes man i didn't have any idea what that song is about and i'm not sure if i know still you know which is funny because he always sounds like he knows where he's going he does he always sounds like he's got shit figured out um yeah (laughs) but but that i think that's pretty common with a lot of folks though you know like um I, and the first time I, I heard that sentiment, I remember Jeff Tweedy saying something to the effect of like, I, half the time, I don't know what my lyrics mean. Now, he writes a lot differently, I think, than a lot of people do. But mm-hmm. um, but he was talking about not trying to explain things because he's like, I, half the time, I don't know what the hell I'm saying. You know, I, that, that's not really my job, you know, necessarily. Um, and, which kind of makes me think a couple of things you said there maybe want to ask you about when you're sitting down to write, uh, initially um is it do you hear a country blues song do you hear a bakersfield sound song these are all sounds that i hear and on this record do you hear a bird's like feeling you know in the way that say silver moon kind of takes me to that sort of the birds kind of uh, vibe um there's a lot it's cohesive work but there's a lot of different stylistic influences when you sit down to write initially, is is that something you're aware of? Uh, I'm I'm writing a country blues song, or I hear a country blues song here, or is that something that does come out more in in the recording and the production? Um, I think initially, I sort of like if it's for example, if it's a song where I sort of have a line or two, and I sort of have a melody. I usually have sort of a rhythm. I don't necessarily know what the instrumentation will be. But if it's like sort of a jazzy ballad or whatever, um, something it like it, um, I, it, it's really hard to explain. Um, <laughs> it, it's uh, like sometimes you know you're going to cook this dish, and sometimes you're just like, man, I'm just cooking something. I don't know what this is going to be. And uh, it just depends on how things, how completely, so to speak, they come out formed. Um, Silver Moon, uh, you mentioned that, was actually Bill Monroe and Stanley Brothers. Like that was the vibe. It was a real high lonesome thing. Um, Yeah, very much. Like almost Monroe Brothers, early Stanley Brothers. Yeah. Uh, More in the, like a Carter family, kind of ghosty kind of instrumentation not like straight bluegrass, you know, but more like that Clinch Mountain kind of sound uh-huh. with a ghost flying all around and all that fallibility and all that great stuff without, like you said, uh, drilling it down and making it perfect. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and in my head, like I, it's funny you said that because I was going through, I was looking to see, you know, 
I've forgotten if I'd written anything, you know, earlier this year because of everything going on in life and the pandemic. And I was looking at my, listening to my phone memos, you know, and I'd gotten all the way back through this year and then just skipping through and seeing it. Oh, that's a cool idea. That's a cool idea. Um, and I, I came across this silver moon that I'd written, you know, day and a half after, um, um, the memorial show for Neil and, uh, and I, uh, I, I was in a hotel room and I'm like singing it super quiet. Um, and I was singing it totally like in a, I won't do it here, but, uh, totally singing it in like I was super high, like whispery, almost Bill Monroe, you know, wow, falsetto, wow. um, which, you know, I can do for fun, but I don't know if I do on a record. Maybe if I'm singing harmony or something, I would do it, the falsetto Bill Monroe thing. But, um, yeah. And then, and then oddly enough, when I made the original demo, the morning I, I wrote it or finished it, um, like, a week or so, less than two weeks before we started recording the record. Um, I'd gotten, I'd gotten down a lot lower, like with the other way, you know, mm. <laughs> like super deep. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then we ended up when we did the record and I got excited and we're in there with the band and we're arranging it. And I was like, Oh, then it went back up in between. So it went back up into like a medium, you know, middle, middle range kind of thing. Yeah. You know, sort of in the country birds and kind of vibe. And then, you know, we were playing it and, but we, we, we initially tried in the studio in the control room, old school, like around one mic, um, uh, maybe one or two. And just like, Hey, let's just stand here on this wood floor and uh in this controlled space and give it a shot and like tony was on mandolin jeff was on upright and uh, i mean i don't know what john was on but uh i think maybe somebody was on banjo and 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 we were just gathered around the mic and it was okay but it didn't have any magic to it you know it was just like yeah you know it was a little bit trying to be something we weren't you know huh. and then i was i think the next day i woke up and i had it in my head and I had that kind of California cosmic country vibe in my head, like meets the Bakersfield and all that stuff. And I was like, okay, let's try this again. Let's go in there and let's plug in everybody. You know, I'll play acoustic, but, uh, you know, John play telly and, and, and Jesse play pedal steel, you know, and let's, let's try this. And, um, and then we started doing it. I was like, that's cool. I was like, you know, but Jeff, how about you play like a super busy, like soul kind of bass line, sort of like some of that, you know, uh, California cosmic country stuff was, you know, or like the birds and the Breeder brothers were so cool. It's just like this super busy yeah. bass part on, on a waltz, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it just sort of happened, you know, like that. And, uh, and we were like, okay, that, that's the way to do it. You know? Um, oh, so we were willing to explore it. Yeah. Know? Um, and, and all that really didn't take that much time either, you know, except for setting things up like mics for the acoustic thing. But, you know, back to what you were saying before, how do you know? It's like, you should know. It should tell you very quickly. And you learn to quit beating that thing up, you know? Well, yes and no, because you you should know, but but it started out in, in this place, right? And it ended mm -hmm. up in this place, yeah. right? So like... 
yes, mm-hmm. you should know, but that has to come from you just being so, as you mentioned earlier, just being so open to uh, other people's ideas and, and feeding off of other people's energy and, and being willing to just be open to, to all of that. Because you're talking about it originally being this bluegrass Bill Monroe kind of song, and then it ends up where it ends up. Um, that's, there's a lot of space in between those sounds, you know, sure. They, they have, they have a lot in common, but there's a lot of space in between those sounds. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for walking through that. Like, so (laughs) such a step-by-step manner. That's really exciting to me, you know, to think about, think about where it started and how, and where it ended up. And it's, you know, it's one of my favorite songs on the record. So. Uh, right. cool. Well, I think one thing what you just, you know, just thinking about it um, and talking about it, um, I think ultimately um, you're also willing to throw it away. Mm. And that goes back to what we're talking about, about editing or having a little bit of wisdom and surrounding yourself with it, some wisdom and experience with people um, who have that um, and trust. If it wasn't right, it's not going on the record, mm-hmm. you know. And that's something I've learned on the last few records. It's like, man, don't put something on there just because you have this idea that it has to be on there, you know. Like, don't be so rigid. Mm-hmm. If it's not, you know, and if you write enough songs, you go, hey, there'll be another record, hopefully, and it'll get on that one, you know. Like Chopping Block from Six Stream Drags, Roots Rock and Roll record. Like, I wrote that song. A lot of years before. Um, I mean, that song was 2001. Or, no, wait, no. That song was on the Neil Casal uh, on the Black Riverside duet record I did with Neil. Wow. Wow. So 99. Wow. And it came out in 2015. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. uh, with the band version. You know, and and like I said, watching over me, and just because those songs are 16 years old now. Yeah. Um, so Are I they... think that you got to be willing to, if they're not ready, they're not ready. If the dish isn't ready to be served, don't serve it. If you don't feel strongly about it and that it's, it's ready for consumption, so to speak. Well, are those are those fifteen year old songs? Are those bouncing around in your head? Are they sitting, you know, are they are they on paper somewhere? Like, how how do you know to return to them? I don't know. Um, it's sort of just like thinking about something that just you just it just comes to you. You uh, know, uh-huh. some, sometimes it just comes to you. Sometimes you sometimes you go looking for it, and like I said, you might find a little demo of it, or somebody reminds you of something. Like there's a song called Apple or Apple of Your Eye that uh, Gary and I, Gary Robin, my friend and manager, and Neil's friend and manager, um, and I were doing some pictures and video the other day, just walking around some places um, in Woodstock. And and I couldn't remember the, like the third, first line of the third verse, don't you know what's on my mind? Uh-huh. I'm like, oh crap, you know? Um, and he was like, I might have it on my phone. And he was looking for it and he played, he goes, remember this? And he clicked on it and he played a, a band demo I had done of that, like, 14, 15 years ago. I was like, wow. I completely forgotten about that song. And I was like, man, that's a cool song. And he was like, yeah, that's why I saved it. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, sometimes you gotta <laughs> depend on the kindness of 
of your friends to remember well, stuff. You that's know? awesome. It is such a good song. And I, um, it's one I wanted to ask you about because there's a couple of songs, um, history lessons like this too. There's a couple of songs that are like um, almost hip hop like in their cadence. Like they're, they're lyrically mm-hmm. kind of have that, um, they have that sort of like um, poetic kind of feel to them where almost like slam poetry is probably a better way to say it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I wanted to ask you about that. Like if, if, if those are songs that are written in that manner and then, and then you find the melody later um, because it almost feels with those songs, like the lyrics really take center stage in that way because they're, they're clipping you along. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It's the Roger Miller and Chuck D influence in my music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that is only a half of a joke. It actually probably is. Um, uh, I think those, but specifically to answer your question, um, I think that like history lesson, for example, like the melody and the lyrics kind of came out together, mm-hmm. you know? And um, yeah, so I really don't know, you know, it's sort of dissecting your influences, but I do actually have a lot of like hip hop influences and reggae influences. I mean, that was, um, I mean, I had country influences when I was a kid, of course, from my parents and people around me. Um, but I also was really into hip hop when I was in my early teens, you know, I mean, I went to like the first Fresh Fest. <laughs> Um, wow. in the 80s, you know, in Greenville, South Carolina, and saw Run DMC and Houdini and Fat Boys and all that stuff, you know. So, you know, Boogie Down Productions, all that stuff, Public Enemy, that, that was a big influence on wow. Um And, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a rapper and an MC and, you know, an R&B singer, you know, as much as anything else, you know, at different times, you know, I was huge into reggae. Um, big time in the 80s and punk rock, you know, and all that kind of went together, you know, so I guess you'd say it's rebel music, you know, when I started to really uh, run away, so to speak, and rebel, you know, between like 13 and 18, it was like all that stuff was all the same to me, you know, whether it was reggae or punk rock or you know, or country, because, you know, you listen to country and you're actually rebelling against the rap and the punk rock yeah. uh, uh, friends, you know, in some ways. But, you know, uh, that's just sort of a joke. But, um, you know, but all my friends, we, we were all, you know, and a lot of musicians, I'm not special, are very eclectic, right. you know, especially from a small town. You know, there was no specific scene that you could be rigid to in a lot of ways, if you liked anything outside of the mainstream. You know, uh, you sort of gravitated in the, the, the hippies and the deadheads and the punk rock kids and the skate punks and, um, you know, uh, any kind of counterculture drug scene, whatever, you know, mm. we're all, um, you know, we're all hanging out together and playing each other music, you know, sharing influences, discovering things, being newbies, you know, at the same time, being newcomers and oh man, check this out, check this out, check this out. So, you know, we would, friends of mine's bands and mine too. It's like you cover a Clash for Ramones song and then you cover a Buck Owens song. I mean, that seemed completely normal to us, you know? should be completely normal, right? That's awesome. It is. It's three chords and the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It was all the same thing to us, you know? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, my old band, the Lubricators, used to cover, like I said, we cover Ramones and the Stones sometimes, and we cover Tiger by the Tail, you know, by Buck Owens, you know? Yeah. And funny enough, it was one of people's favorite songs that are set a lot of times. Right, right. Oh, you know, so great. making that jump, making that jump into, which a lot of bands did, you know, yeah. cowpunk stuff in the 80s and in the 90s, the sort of all country scene, uh, the alternative, whatever you want to call it. You know, it wasn't a big jump for any of us. You know, it was sort yeah. of like we all liked a lot of kinds of music. Sometimes there was some glue that held all together. I think Neil Young and Neil Young and Crazy Horse was one of those, you know, mm. little beat and the stones and all that. That was sort of the glue that held all that stuff together. Um, were you aware yeah, that as far as influences? Like at that time with Six Chain Dragon, were you aware of of that sort of what I now look back on and see as kind of a movement, you know, that sort of cowpunk alt country, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it, it, that's what I gravitate toward, you know, a lot of the time, uh, especially in my twenties, I did. You know, I missed it. I was a little yeah. bit yeah, I was a little bit young to to be in the middle of like the that renaissance, so to speak. But um, were you aware in the, in the? You know, I got it, I got to it later. I got to it through Lucero, really, and and then yeah. Wilco got me to Uncle Tupelo, and you know I got kind of mm-hmm. in in that uh, two cal garage a little bit later. So early two thousands is yeah. kind of when that stuff came into my life. But were you aware yeah. that there was something kind of big happening then at the time? It's hard to say yes and no. I knew it was getting some exposure, you know, and I knew that we were hearing stuff, you know, and of course we were sort of like just on the tail end of like, you know, we were like mid-period Jayhawks, later on Tupelo, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not mid-period Jayhawks, but, you know, like, you know, like in the, like Six String Drag came, like we formed in 93, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, so I was sort of starting to lean more on the songwriter vein and the rootsy vein at the end of the lubricator stuff. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of like, you want to do your own thing, but it sort of pushes you that way as well when other people are doing that kind of thing. Mm. Um, it sort of gives you oh, permission, you know, maybe the, the rebel in me won't, won't say that out loud, but I just did, you know, sure. it yeah. sort of co-signs. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, that is cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and especially when you're young like that, that's what you know? we liked. And that's what we liked about that stuff, you know, that it did mix that stuff up, you know, um, and, and, um, it was a little bit the North Carolina scene, the central North Carolina scene, like Raleigh and Chapel Hill. Um, I mean, I was visiting up there a lot and then I moved up there in, um, well, I moved up there in 91 and then I moved back to Clemson, South Carolina. And I sort of started six string drag at, in early 93. And then when I uh, packed up camp and went back to South Carolina, Rob Keller and I, my old friend who I'd known since I was a kid, he's older than me, but families knew each other lived in the same neighborhood we started playing a little bit and trying out some of the songs i was writing and um and then i started working at his his record store Mm. um and his family owned a record store they just bought from another friend and so it was the heyday of not only a lot of this stuff coming out um in that early you know 
uh, country scene um, in the early 90s, but also reissues. Mm. You know, like tons of stuff was getting reissued on CD. Mm. Um, it was like the heyday, like the golden age of like all these great reissues on CDs, like all, you know, like all the bear family stuff, you know, um, country stuff, blues stuff, jazz stuff, just lots of great roots music um, was, was either being remastered or reissued, you know, like Ron Woods, I got my own album to do came out, you know, mm. and, um, reissued on CD. And so we were just soaking up so much of the stuff. Mm. Um, and I, I guess I, that's, that's a bit of an aside, but, um, as far as back in, when I moved back in Raleigh and then Rob moved up there and we continued six string drag, um, around 94, 95 up there. Um, we made our first record in 94. It came out early 95. Um, and, things were starting like label bigger labels were starting to pay attention to it mm-hmm. you know it's like we were doing basically like you know we started the middle slot and headline shows at the brewery in raleigh and us and the backsliders and whiskey town would open up you know and all these other bands or bands from out of town would come open up like we'd have a drive-by trucker come up or we'd play down there in in athens um at the hi-hat and um, you know, so a lot of bands were starting to get a look as far as from labels, medium to bigger labels. Um, I think that maybe some labels were looking for the next grunge, you know, mm. um, and oh, there was a lot of, you know, I, I think they, I mean, I don't know if that was really said, but it seemed like it, like, yeah. they're like, okay, what's the next thing? What are we going to do here? Um, cause that stuff was sort of dying off maybe a little bit. Um, uh, as far as looking for something new. Um, and so, you know, it was like bands like the 97s were getting labels, record deals, and the backsliders got signed to, to, um, to Mammoth and Mammoth became like a subsidiary. I don't know what they were at first, but then they were Disney. Um, and then Whiskey Town, um, got signed to, uh, I forgot the label now, um, Outpost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to think they were a subsidiary of Gaffin, I can't remember, but, um, or an imprint. Um, and, and, and then Steve Sauce, like Whiskey Town hadn't been signed yet. The Backslogs just gotten signed. Uh, Steve Earl saw us at Bubba Palooza in Atlanta. And uh, his friend who worked for the label had um, him and other people, her and then other people at the label at E squared um, just came down to check out the festival and they were supposed to stay around and see whiskey town the next night. And then something happened and he had to get back, but he saw us that night. And it's kind of a funny story. We were, um, we're out there playing and we look out there and Patterson from the driver truckers who were really in their early stage then. I don't even know if they'd made the first record. I think they'd made their like the long bullet seven inch. Um, uh-huh. And so Patterson, I think drive-by truckers maybe were playing the next night or something. Um, but Patterson was there and he's standing out in the crowd, you know, and he's got his arms folded like next to this guy, you know, and, and they're both like grinning ear to ear and the guy's got these sunglasses on, you know, like biker mirror glasses or whatever. And, and, 
and I'm looking out and I was like, that guy looks familiar. You know, we're playing our show. We had full horn section and everything. It was like a seven piece band. And, uh, and everybody's just Patterson, this guy just getting off. And um, so we go backstage after the show and man, and Rob goes, dude, set that guy out there. That Steve Earle looking guy was getting off, man. He was like, he was really into us, man. He was like, that was cool. And I just looked at him and said, I think, oh, oh, it's, I, I forgot this part of the story. Somebody had come up to me and said, hey, Steve Earle is here. After, this was after we played. Hey, Steve Earle's here and he'd love to talk to you after the show. So Rob was telling me this. He's like, you know, telling me about, man, that's Steve Earle looking guy. And I said, Rob, that was Steve Earle. He wants to talk to us outside. And so we went outside and talked to him. And and he goes, man, I really loved you guys. I was not, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that. And your harmonies and the horns. And he was like, you got this band, the band thing going on, the loose but tight thing. And he was really, really complimentary into it. He goes, well, why don't you, I want to talk to you guys uh, about, possibly doing something together and and he said meet me for lunch tomorrow i have to leave town and so i mean for breakfast and so we met him at his hotel for breakfast and he said you know i did not come here to sign a band i wasn't expecting to but you guys make me have to drop back and punt so do you want to be on the label so he was like the only requirement is i want to produce your first record so um so that's how that all happened so then you know long story longer so whiskey town got signed right after that the outpost and then backsliders or something, and then us, and then a couple of Chapel Hill bands were signed. And so there was, you know, sort of the Central North Carolina movement and um, and Southeastern bands were getting some recognition and getting signed. So we sort of felt like we were part of that, but not really. Oh, you know, it was just, you know, it was like, you don't sit there and dissect that stuff when it's happening. You know, yeah, I knew we were starting to get shows. I knew we got signed to a label. We we're making this record, you know, but we were just more excited about damn. We love I feel all right and trying to come and this guy yeah. was back doing these great records. You know, we were a fan already. You know, yeah, and um, and and we're like shit, man. We've just been listening to those records. And this guy wants to put us on his label and and produce us. So um, very, it was very cool. We thought about it more in those terms, you know. Um, yeah. Then, then, oh, we're a big part of this big movement, you know. Right. That's a sort of a strange thought to me, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I imagine that's what you were gonna say, but, but still, I just, you know, even as you're reflecting, it sounds like you, you did know something was going on. You, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, uh, it was there. Bands like, I'm sure, I, I can only imagine what it was like seeing early truckers and early whiskey town and. You know, yeah. some of those bands, like I can only imagine how exciting that must have been, whether you could process it or not at the time. Like those, those, those bands are timeless. Those, those records are, are classics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I can only imagine how exciting that is. And then to have Steve fucking Earl to, <laughs> to just kind of not, <laughs> not expecting anything, find you guys and make your record like ah oh, that's so thank you so much for going down that memory lane man that was, yeah, that was i fun. can't tell you how exciting yeah, his, that his was, friend for was you know his friend was you know at the label and she worked for the label um as well i shouldn't say his friend but um uh she, you know she had heard our first record so you know i don't know if she played it for him but she was like you got to see these guys i've never seen them i want to see them i like their music and i'd actually talked to her when she was at another label before that and i forgot what label she worked at and she had said man i'm trying to get some people here interested in you guys so 
the, the one thing was like we were sort of starting to get phone calls a little, little bit, you know, and uh, we'd actually done like Columbia was interested in us at some point, you know, and mm-hmm. so we'd done some demos for them, but never, which became the Jag sessions later. Oh, okay. But we reissued a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, some of that stuff became the Jag sessions, um, that the Columbia stuff, um, but they passed. It's like, yeah, I don't know, you know, for whatever reason, you know, right. um, and, uh, and then after that is when Steve saw us, you know, wow. Have you worked with him since? No, the only, I haven't really even, I hadn't really even seen him since back, you know, when the band broke up. Um, so like 98 ish, mm. um, until the Neil tribute memorial show in September, he was there. So I got to talk to him and that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit and uh, we just talked for a little bit backstage a couple of times and then I played right before he did it the tribute so mm-hmm. yeah it was cool yeah good to reconnect and Kenny you've given me more than I could have imagined we always end on uh, what you're getting down on um, just what you're listening to what you're reading like what art has you fired up right now could be a TV um, show man, could be I a- have- uh, well, I've been obsessing on Chet Baker lately on his mm. vocal records, um, on Chet Baker sayings. It seems to be a daily habit. Um, okay. I've been, you know, listening to like more like country funk stuff and, and listening to Rusty Kershaw a lot. I don't know if you've ever heard those records. The, um, the one he did, uh, uh, Blues in the Cajun Country, I think it's called. Okay. And then he did another one in 91 that I think maybe Neil, Neil Young was on and they've co-produced. Um, fantastic records. Really, really fantastic records. Um, books, you know, a little bits of everything, you know. Um, yeah. I'm great. reading The Prophet a little bit. I just read like little tiny bits of books. I'm reading, a, you know, a bit of Thomas Merton letters. I'm just looking over mm. here and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, some sort of a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of Eastern um, spiritual kind of stuff. You know, yeah. um, I want to pick up the uh, Small Town Talk, which is a book that was written about the Woodstock area, yeah. a history of Woodstock. You're up there now, right? Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's a big move. Yeah. Although it's very much like back home in a lot of mm. ways. It's like, you know, I grew up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge and um, the Appalachian Mountains and um, in upstate South Carolina. So I went from one upstate to the other, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's the same, similar, same mountain range, not similar. Um, and it reminds me of that and of Western North Carolina. So the scenery is similar. Maybe maybe that on steroids in some places. Right, right. Um, and and the people are great here. You know, it's a small town, and uh, you know, eclectic mix of people, um, artistic, and you know, it's got a good it's got a good mix of uh, a little bit of um, the country and the city feel. I got to get up there, man. I've spent, I've spent time in Vermont, spent time in uh, New Hampshire, Maine. I mean, I've been to the city plenty of times, but I've never made it to upstate New York. I need to do it. It's beautiful. It's very beautiful. I recommend it. Cool. Kenny, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Oh, thanks. This is so much fun. The record's amazing. It comes out on the 7th of August, right? 
Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. right, I'll, this will probably be released right after that. So it'll probably be that Monday okay. that I'll release this. So, um, okay. really, really exciting, man. I'm, I'm so oh. grateful for all your time and for you being so open and for those stories. Oh. Like, I was getting like chills yeah. thinking about those stories. So oh. Thank you for going Hopefully down I didn't ramble too much. I no, it was great. It was great. Was I'm all fired yeah. up, man. I'm going to go listen to Rusty Kershaw and Chet Baker and, um, yeah, do it. And Bobby Charles, you gotta get yeah. it. Bobby okay. Bobby, Bobby Charles. Charles too. And for his, just, his, yeah, his first, um, yeah, his first or self-titled record, not first record, 1972. Right. I'm going to throw, uh, we got a cop. We got a vinyl copy of, I feel all right. I'm going to throw that on too while I'm at it. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. All well, right, thank man. You so much for having me. Thank you. Okay. Be well. All right. All right. See you. All right you too. Thanks. Oh, 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 yesterday. History lesson tomorrow, baby Might never happen, go fetch today Get to a tapping in the splinter out of your seat Oh, there's a waterfall Just cross the way Well, it ain't too tall Cause I ain't too brave Go pick up all on your way out Kenny Roby, y'all. Thank you so much, Kenny. Thank all of you for listening. What an honor. I love that conversation, and I'm so glad I get to bring it to you. I, I'm just... Thank you, Kenny for indulging me in that 90s alt-country conversation. He gave me more than I could have expected, y'all. That was such an honor and such a pleasure, and I'm so grateful for your time and energy. Thank all of you for spreading the word about the show. It it seems like every day I'm getting a new message and uh, somebody saying something about the show. Our Patreon community just grew. Huge shout-out to our friend Jasmine. Welcome, Jasmine. Welcome to Patreon. It's It means so much, y'all. Every little bit helps, and it makes a huge difference. Um, it's so much fun to make this show and, and to, to have the support that we have on Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. If you want to join, is is really heartwarming and incredibly helpful. Uh, thank you so much for the Twitter messages lately. I feel like we've been getting a lot of feedback on Twitter. Um, if you're not following us yet, please do so, at Podcast. On Twitter, Instagram, uh, we're on Facebook as well. I've been having so much fun recapping the last few years of the marinade. Three years we're coming up on, y'all. We're almost at three years. Can you believe it? And uh, it's taking me a while because as I'm recapping each episode, I'm, I'm, I'm telling stories about them, and it has taken me longer than I expected to get through these episodes because I have so much to say. There's such fond memories. It's been this show has become such a big part of my life, and being able to make it gives me such joy and makes me a better person. Y'all make me better, and I really, really appreciate that. All right, y'all. It's time for what I'm getting down on this segment of the show, where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. I have just been wearing out Joshua Ray Walker's new record. And I'm releasing this on a Sunday. Josh and I are actually going to sit down to chat tomorrow. And I can't wait. It's, you know, I think when we look at when we look at the Americana genre now, it's it's something that is uh, amorphous. And I like that about it. So many different acts can can fit in that in that kind of umbrella of Americana and then there's just some folks that are just straight up country music players and singers, you know, and I think Josh is a country music guy and damn it. I love country music. You know, I grew up on it. Um, and, and, and he just writes great country songs. 
So this record has taken me back to uh, sort of an idealized version of of what I was as a as a teenager and an <laughs> early twenties guy, um, because it's it's the kind of music that I was listening to at the time on heavy rotation. Of course, I have always had varied interests, but my bread and butter was country music for so long, and I like that about this record. It takes me to a, a certain place. Uh, so excellent job, Josh, and I am so excited to speak with him. That's the, the music that I've just been totally wearing out, honestly. I've been revisiting a lot of, of stuff. So this conversation with Kenny led me down the, the 90s alt-country path. And uh, his band, Six String Drag, that I didn't really know very well. I mean, of course, I knew of them, but I didn't really know their stuff. As I mentioned in the conversation, my alt-country intro was more uh, Lucero and then later Two Cal Garage. Um, and, and, and so I missed out on, some, on the heyday of it because I was listening to mainstream country at the time. So I revisited those records and then the performances that still exist, if you can find a few of them on YouTube, uh, of Six String Drag, especially the, the most recent time they, they, re- they reunited a couple years ago. Um, it's been so fun to go down that road. And then the whole orbit, like the whole world that Kenny orbits. So all the Neil Casal stuff, um, and rest in peace, Neil, we miss you. That stuff is unbelievable. Like Neil's performances were just dynamic. Every one of them that I've, that I've seen was just amazing. And I never got to see him live. And, um, you know, it's one of those, like, you can't, of course, go back and change anything, and, and it doesn't do any good to regret. But he's been on my list. You know, he was on my list for, for years to reach out to and, 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 and get him on the show, and I just never made it happen. I, I don't remember if I ever sent an email. I don't remember if I ever tried to get in touch, honestly. But I know he was on my list. I mean... He's done so much. He's been in so many amazing bands, and, and, and he accomplished so much in his all-too-short life. But when you start going down that that path, and you start listening to Kenny's stuff, and you start listening to Neil's stuff, man, you're getting into old Ryan Adams and the Cardinals, and that's going to... And then with Neil, you can go to Willie Nelson, and just there's so many way, different directions to go that um, that's kind of where my brain has been musically lately. Reading wise, I haven't watched a damn thing because I've watching uh, the Cincinnati Reds every night until unfortunately one of their players tested positive. So we'll see how long that that goes. But I've been li- I've been watching baseball almost every night, and it's been such a nice escape. It's been so nice to just like I can't totally turn my brain off with baseball. It is an intellectual pursuit for me. I do think about the game pretty deeply, but I am able to f- to, to to escape. Right. So I am able to like forget about the world for a second and just enjoy the game. So I haven't been watching like shows or anything, but I have been reading a lot. I've been trying to take it easy on social media and that's led to me being more focused on on reading. So I've got three books going right now that I just I keep going to, to different ones and I'm reading like twenty five pages at a time, thirty pages at a time, and then I'll put it down and I'll pick another one up because it's in a different room. And uh, kind of doing the Stephen King thing where he says to, to read as much as you can and read in those those little moments where you've got some downtime. Like just read, read, read. That's kind of how it's been for me right now. So I, I picked up Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test again, which you may remember I was reading when I went to Gasparilla Music Fest, but I put it down to finish uh, Steve Silberman's Neurotribes. 
And Steve's going to be on the show coming up Wednesday, which I'm super stoked for. And then um, The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. I love Philip Roth and the way he writes. Uh, this book is fantastic. And then This Is Your Brain on Music is the other book I've been reading. Uh, it's been out for a few years and is, um, you know, kind of wonky, but like in a way that's that's accessible. So if you haven't read it and you're really into music, I highly recommend it because I think it's accessible to, to both the seasoned musician and also... Uh, the lay person who just enjoys, you know, listening, and then the in-between person like me, <laughs> who's kind of calls himself a half of a songwriter, right? Y'all, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. You're amazing. Thank you so much for the support of the show. It, it, it has felt overwhelming lately in a, in a really positive way, the support that we've gotten, and uh, I just, I, I don't take it for granted. Until next time. Go out and create something if you can do it. If not, don't beat yourself up. Cheers, y'all.